It is a great weekend. I know it's time change and all that stuff, and you'll wake up about an hour from now, but it's an incredible weekend, a lot of change going on, because this is the very first Sunday in our new building in Jasper. And so let's give it up for that, man. Yeah, it is so, so incredible. It is not our grand opening weekend. That is two weeks from now. This is our soft launch, and we had a prayer service there last night. And man, I just got to tell you, it is incredible. Uh, and literally uh, is a result of your sacrifice and your generosity. Because three years ago this month, we launched our Multiply initiative to multiply the gospel, to multiply at every area, at every level in our church. And this is just a tangible evidence of that. So it's kind of crazy that now, three years later, we're actually meeting in the facility. And not everything is done yet. That's why we're waiting uh, for a couple weeks to do the grand opening. We still got to finish the parking lot because, again, it's been like a monsoon out there and thank you for praying for no rain. We had a couple good days of no rain. Now we just need more. So if you can keep praying so that we can finish the parking lot uh, and then we'll have our grand opening in two weeks and then Easter a couple weeks after that. Uh, and so it's just incredible, man. And, and I want to encourage you, especially if you attend the Canton location, um, to go up there at some point and to see the Jasper facility, uh, to experience the campus. Don't do it on grand opening weekend, all right? Because uh, we want to welcome all the guests from the community. But at some point after that, because it just helps you to understand just the impact that God is making through our local church. Uh, and it's just incredible, man. I mean, just being there last night and seeing everything and the facility and our team there, uh, it, it gets emotional uh, just thinking about God uh, and what he's doing through our church to be a blessing, to seek the welfare of Pickens County. And so I want to encourage you to do that. And if you live in Pickens County, then that is your campus, all right? The whole reason why we moved into that community is to seek the welfare of the city. And I promise you, once you see it, you'll be like, all right, I'm going here. Uh, because it's just incredible. And, and don't, don't worry about being, I'm telling you, the video looks amazing, man. It's like I, I look more there than here. I mean, it's incredible. It's just our, our production team, all of our team members have just done an incredible, incredible job. Uh, and so it's amazing that this Sunday, literally, they are worshiping with us right now, which they do every Sunday, but in the new facility, it's just incredible. So thank you for believing in the vision to multiply. And we'll be talking more about that for the next few weeks and just showing you tangible evidence of what God is doing here and all over the world. And so great, great month uh, to be a part of Revolution Church. And if you're new, welcome, man. We are so glad that you are here. You are a part literally of a move of God. Uh, and so it's incredible to be a part of it. So if you got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 12. Speaking of God doing great things, we're in this series in the book of Romans, and we've taught through uh, last year chapters 1 through 11, and now we are in chapter 12. In fact, we're going to finish out chapter 12 today, and then we'll finish out the book in the school year at the end of May. And so we will have finished out Romans. It'll be almost like 50 weeks of messages. And so if you want to go back and listen to any of those, I would highly encourage it. Because what we've talked about over the last several weeks is there's a transition that happens in chapter 12, because in chapter 12, you get into the practical implications of all the theology or the doctrines of chapters 1 through 11, and chapter 12 starts with a therefore, saying now, in light of that, in light of all that God has done by the mercies of God, to now live like this. And so the, the practical implications of chapter 12 through 16 are, are saying here, if you want to be a person of integrity, like we've talked about, if you want to live an integrated life, here's how you do it. Chapters 12 through 16 show you how to do that. And so we're just going to finish out chapter 12 this week, and then we'll jump into chapter 13 next week. And so before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together, then we'll jump into the word.
Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word and how you are on the move. I, I love that your word is alive and active. And God, I pray that as we read it today, as we hear it today, that you would move, that it would be active in our hearts and lives, and it would make the necessary changes that need to happen in each one of us. God, all of us have so much, uh, so much room to grow. And so God, I pray that you would meet with us today to show us that not only we have that room, but you're gonna help us. And we ask you to do that through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 12, verse, we're going to start in verse 14, then we'll work our way down to verse 21, all right? So verse 14 and 15, it says this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now let's talk about that. I'm not going to do the whole sermon just on those two verses, but in this section, last week we were talking about uh, he's getting into relationships, having right relationships, and, and we were talking last week about what that looks like, how we are to love people, and now he's taking that same concept and kind of expanding it a little bit and saying, you know, not only are we called to love people who like us, but we're also called to love people who may not like us. You may have people in your life, he's going to use the word enemy later on, but you may have people in your life that persecute you. And this word persecute means to oppress. And the idea even is it could be systematic, like, like people who are just oppressing you. And I don't know about you, but it was a shock to me in my life to find out that I had enemies. Has that been a shock to you? Like, honestly, and, and I, you know, I'm being this little tongue in cheek, but I'm being serious. I'm like, how can people not like this? Right? I mean, like, come on, there is a lot to love here. Not only am I a big dude, right? But like, it's surprising, honestly. And I don't mean this arrogantly. Like, I you know, have an inflated view of myself because I don't, because I know I'm a messed up sinner. But, it, but it's kind of a shock to the system when, when, when you think, oh, whoa, oh, you, you don't like me. And not only that they may not like you, but they may be out to get you. That was another like kind of thing in my life to understand. Oh, we, we live in an evil world. And there are some people that are wise and there are some people that are foolish, but there are some people who are evil. And I did a message years and years ago. You can go back and watch it about how to handle wise people, foolish people, and evil people. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, sobering thought to think that there are actually people who don't like you or actually people who might hurt you. And so our natural fleshly response, once we kind of get over that, is, and this is why I love the Bible. I got to say this too, and I say it often. I love the Bible because the Bible is emotionally honest. I love the Bible because the Bible knows you better than you know you. And the reason why the Bible says to bless and not to curse is because the Bible knows when somebody persecutes you, what is your natural response? Come on, don't act like you're saints. Fight back. Yeah, fight back to curse them, right? And, and when we talk about cursing, this is what's always funny to me in the church, we talk about cursing, we always think about bad words, right? Like four-letter words. And they just come to our minds so easily, especially in Atlanta traffic, right? And, and we just think like cursing is bad words. But this idea of cursing goes beyond just 
bad words. The idea of cursing is literally calling down supernatural help to inflict a curse on someone. I mean, if you ever seen TV shows, you know, the idea of witch doctors or getting a voodoo doll, right? And I mean, I'm sure you've had people in your life where you made a doll and you started sticking with pins, right? And you were like, somebody, you may not even believe in God, but like inflict pain on them. And so the idea of cursing is not, again, I don't want you to leave today. I'm like, I'm gonna quit cursing. No, the idea is not just use better language, which I would highly encourage you to use because there are other words besides four letter ones, Right? So, so yes, beef up your vocabulary, but, but the idea here is not just when someone hurts you that you don't curse them, but you bless them. Now, this word bless is a word that you already know. Literally, the Greek word for this word bless is the English word eulogy. Eulogy. Now, when you think eulogy, probably what automatically comes to your mind is a funeral. Because the eulogy is something that we do at a funeral when we eulogize someone. And so a eulogy is when you get up and you talk about the, fir- the person. Literally, the Greek word eulogy is made up of two words. Lego, which means to speak, and you, which means well. So it means to speak well of someone. And so when at a funeral, you want somebody to stand up and speak well of them, Right? In fact, here's one of my goals. One of my goals is to live my life in such a way where no one has to lie at my funeral. Right? No one has to lie in my eulogy. And we've all been to those funerals. Where people get up there, because death makes saints out of people. Right? We get up there and somebody's talking, you're like, that is not the dude I know. So I'm going to live my life in such a way where people don't have to lie in eulogizing me. But here's what I want you to understand. We don't have to wait until someone dies to speak well of them. We can actually do it while they're still living. We don't have to wait till that point to eulogize them. We can speak well of them while they're still alive. Now, here's what's crazy. The Bible is saying those who persecute you speak well of them. Now, this is when you're like, hold up. Speak well of them. They're not doing well to me. They're not doing good to me. And and you want me to to speak well of them? Now, listen, the Bible's not saying, again, when someone is evil or someone is hurtful, there is no good in them. It's not saying, you know, speak well of them, because there may be times in your life where you can't speak well of them, but you can speak well to them. You may not be able to speak well of them because maybe they don't have the qualities yet, but you can speak well to them. And that's the idea here. You bless, it's a verbal blessing. And again, this is such a lost art in our world today, but you go back into biblical times and you see how the father blessed his kids. So much so that you had brothers, right, like fighting each other to get the blessing of their father. Because all of us, every single one of us, we need verbal affirmations from other people. It's just a human need. This is why I don't care how much you talk to yourself in the mirror, it's never enough, right? Like, doggone it, people like you. 
It's always weird to me, like, you're awesome, you're amazing, people like you. One person says something, and that totally went out the window. Or should I say, out the mirror, right? I thought that was funnier, but like seven, I guess y'all, it's still too early for y'all to catch my jokes, all right? But you need verbal affirmations from people outside of you. But again, we will never give them if we base our praises on how they first treat us. So what the Bible is saying is, listen, it doesn't really matter what is coming to you. What comes from you has to be dictated by something else, not what's coming to you. So even if hurt and evil and pain is coming to you, we never have a right to just let cursing now come out of that. We are called to eulogize, to bless. Now, He says this next phrase, which is very interesting to me. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, it may feel like it's a little strange. He's talking about persecuting, because again, he's going to talk about enemies in just a minute. And now he's talking about persecuting, and now he's talking about emotions of rejoicing and weeping. Now, if you've been around, you know I like prepositions and pronouns, and I'm going to do several of those in this text because I think they're important. But this word here, rejoice with, weep with, that word with is a preposition of accompaniment. And I can't say that word very well, but it means to go with. It means to accompany. And so the best, listen to me, the best emotional thing that we can do when someone is being emotional whether it's rejoicing, that's a good one, or whether it's weeping, which a lot of times we perceive as negative, but it's good to weep. Here's basically what he's saying. The best way we can bless somebody is go with them. Go with them. Now, this is so important because Christians a lot of times are honestly (laughs) the most emotionally immature people. And so when someone around you is rejoicing, sometimes the best thing that you can do is just rejoice with them. In fact, think about yourself. When you're rejoicing about something, don't you hate it when those around you won't rejoice with you? Like this is step, if you were here last week, we did step one in pastoral care of humble yourself, honor your spouse. Here's step two of pastoral care. Just go with them. Go with them. If your spouse comes home and he's rejoicing or she's rejoicing, rejoice with them. And this is when you're like, but I don't like them. Or when they left that morning, they were persecuting me. Right? Again, emotionally, again, this is what I love the Bible because it's emotionally honest. It's helping you understand. Listen, sometimes that's the best way you can bridge the gap with those who are persecuting you. The best way is to go with them in their emotions. Go with them, especially if somebody's grieving. Again, we talk about this often. Please don't be one of those Christians who throws out scriptures from a sermon that you heard four years earlier and you totally butcher it when somebody's grieving. In that moment, people are like, I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just go with them. Just grieve with them. Just weep. Because again, think about it. The times when you're weeping, do you want to be around somebody who's rejoicing? No. 
In fact, you wanna persecute them. (laughs) But when you're weeping, what do you want? You want somebody who weeps with you. I'll never forget, I don't know how far into my marriage with Lindsay, but we were having a conversation one day about emotions. And she used this analogy. She said, sometimes, and I've said this often here, she's like, I just want you to get on the roller coaster with me. Just ride the roller coaster. I'm like, yeah, but I want to do it. It makes me nauseous, right? She's like, well, just go with me. I'm like, all right, I'll go with you as long as at some point we get off, right? We get back on the platform, stable ground. But, but here's what the Bible is saying. Listen, you got to be, you got to understand that relationships require emotional investments. And especially when it comes to those that may be persecuting you or what he's going to call enemies earlier or later, one of the best ways we can bridge that gap is by emotionally feeling with them. Because maybe if we will just emotionally feel with them what they're feeling, maybe they won't persecute us anymore. Which is why he says what he says next. Look at verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with one another. Is that, can we just be honest? Is that one tough? And it's a command, by the way. Live in harmony with one another. But don't miss what he says next. You want to understand the key to living in harmony? Not thinking haughty. Now, what is haughty? That's not a word that we use in English anymore. But haughty means high, means tall, which is why he says in the next part, go associate with the lowly. And again, the the idea, this is a preposition of association. And so the, the, the concept is, if you wanna live in harmony with somebody, you better not think too high of yourself, but you better understand, you better think objectively or honestly about yourself. Because here's what happens, which is a lot of times why we get enemies. What happens so often is, now listen, we judge ourselves by emotions, but we judge others by facts. Now think about this. When we do something wrong, we have an emotional reason as to why we did that. Oh, you got to understand. You got to understand what's going on in my life. I mean, this is why I did. This is what I was feeling. What I was feeling led to me doing this. But when it comes to someone else, we don't want to hear their emotions, right? Like we judge ourselves graciously and we judge others very judgmentally. We judge ourselves very subjectively and we judge others very objectively, And you want to know why we do that? Because we're the subject. Now, now follow me here. I'm going to give you a little bit of of a deeper English lesson. He says, never be wise in your own sight. That phrase there, in your own, is a pronoun. And I'm going to read this to you, and I'll explain it to you, because it was just so amazing to me. In your own is the use of a pronoun. Now, listen to this. To reference the subject as the object. To reference the subject as the object of the active verb. Now, what in the world does that have to do with relationships? Everything. 
Again, think back to English. You got a sentence structure. You got subjects and you got objects, right? Subjects, typically the ones doing the verb. Objects are typically the ones receiving the action, right? So typically subject is doing the action, object receiving it. But this instance is when the subject is also acting like the object. So here's what this means. When you are wise in your own sight, you are judging yourself, the subject, as though you're the object as well. So here's what happens. We quit thinking objectively because we have replaced it. Replaced it. Listen to me. We have replaced the object with the subject and we start thinking subjectively. Now, what does that mean? When I think objectively, what I'm saying is that's objective. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. That's true. The best way to think about this is gravity. Gravity is objective. If I jump off this stage, it doesn't matter how I feel about gravity. Gravity's going to win, right? Particularly with this body, because this is a lot of mass. So gravity's objective. But we live in this weird world today. And if you are an emotionally healthy human being, you will relate to what I'm about to say. We live in this real weird world today where we treat objective things as though they are now subjective. Let me, let me replace gravity. Gravity is just simply truth. We live in this weird world today where gravity or truth is not something that we discover, but we live in this world where truth is something we create. Truth is no longer objective where it exists outside of me. This is why when people start talking weird like this, they talk about my truth. Oh, this is my truth. And people confuse their story with truth. They confuse the subject with the object. And they never understand, or they, they start doing what the Bible says not to do, where they're thinking wise in their own sight. But the Bible says, never do that. Never. You want to know what that word means in the Greek? Any guesses? Never. You guys are so smart. Never. Never treat yourself as the subject as though you are the object. Here's what that means. Understand that there are objective things that exist outside of you. There is a truth that exists outside of you. There is reality that exists outside of you. And when you can understand that, then it will change how you relate to other people. And here's what's crazy. When we are so gracious with ourselves and we use feelings to describe why we did something, but yet when other people are trying to describe what they are saying or why they did something, we're like, feelings don't matter. It's about facts. We should do the exact opposite. Here's what the Bible is saying. You should feel what they're feeling. You should be subjective with them and objective with yourself. You should be gracious with them. 
You should go with them when they're feeling what they're feeling, but don't allow yourself, don't allow the subject to drift and become the object. Don't start looking subjectively at things that God has objective, subjectively, that God has objectively set. You want to know why you and I are wise in our own sight? Because we're humans. Like everybody is wise in their own sight. And this is what's crazy as a pastor. You know, speaking of pastoral care, there are, are situations and stories and things that we hear where I'm like, huh? You thought that was wise? I'm, I'm just crazy. And you guys are so inventive in how you sin. Like for real. Like I'll hear people like, you thought that was a good decision? But you want to know what keeps me compassionate with people like that? Because I know my counselor does the same thing when I talk to him. Right? Like pastors in my life, I tell them what I did. They're like, what? You did what? But how do I describe it? Oh, that's how I felt. And what a good counselor or a good friend or a good objective person will do with you is to say, listen, you let your feelings override the facts. You went with your emotions, but your emotions lie to you. You want to know the problem with you? It's the same problem with me. You take you with you everywhere you go. That's the problem with you. And this is why people are like, well, I need out of this marriage and I need into that marriage. You want to know the problem? You're taking you into that marriage. That's the problem. It's like when people get upset in churches. The pro you want to know what the problem is in the church? People. People are the problem. But here's what I'm saying to you. You want to know what you are? A person. So the problem in the church is people, and you are the person who is the problem. This is like when people are like, I'm so upset I'm leaving a church. Listen, if you find a perfect one, don't join it because you'll mess it up. <laughs> right? There is no perfect church. And revolution, trust me, is far from perfect. You want to know why? Because I'm leading this joker. It's not perfect. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to offend. I'm going to. But here's where, and this is why, why we don't grow is because when that happens, we objectively just get mad and take our toys and go home. As opposed to understanding subjectively, maybe they were going through something and they wouldn't have done that if they were thinking rightly. So we got to start thinking, listen, here, let me give you again. This is step three of pastoral care. Assume the best about their intentions and assume the worst about yours. Assume the worst about your intentions. You want to know why I say that? Because you already assume the best about yours. You already assume the best about your intentions. But an emotionally healthy person will think objectively and will understand, listen, my goal is to live in harmony I'm not, I'm not going to exalt myself. I'm going to humble myself and not think right in my own, own ways. I'm not going to act like the subject is the object, which is why he says what he says next. Look at verse 17 and 18. Repay no one evil for evil, 
but give thought. This is so huge. Don't you just want to ask people, what were you thinking? You want to know the problem? They weren't thinking. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, now listen to this verse, verse 18. I love this one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love how the Bible puts that. If possible, which means it may not be possible. It may not be possible to live peaceably. But listen to me. So far as it depends upon you, it better be possible. In fact, that's the title of today's message. So far as it depends upon you. You want to know the problem with other people? The problem with other people is you can't control them. Any parents here came to parent conference? You're like, that's a problem, pastor. You're right. If I could just control them suckers, well, guess what? If you could control them, they'd be robots. And your parents felt the same way about you. And the problem with, I think I heard an amen somewhere in that one, right? <laughs> the problem with your kids is they're like you. Right? Yeah, come on now. That's the problem. They came by sin naturally. So the problem with other people is you can't control them. But you want to know the solution? Control yourself. Control yourself. Listen, if you spend the rest of your life trying to control other people, you'll go crazy. But if you spend the rest of your life by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, trying to control yourself, you got a shot. This is why I love this phrase, so far as it depends upon you. The word there, depends, is a preposition of source. What that means is this. My job and your job in any relationship, in any dynamic where other people are involved, my job is to make sure that I'm the source of peace, not the source of problem. That's my job. I'm the source of peace, not the source of problems. Again, this applies to marriage, it applies to your work, it applies to relationships within the church. Assume the best about them, assume the worst about you. Here's what is something I learned a long time ago. I just always assumed it was my fault. You know what's crazy? If I walk into a conversation with somebody and I automatically assume it's my fault, their defenses go down. But if I walk into the situation assuming it's their fault, their defenses stay up and we get nowhere. But if I walk into the situation and say, you know what? I was the source of the problem. I've been the source of the problem. But I want to be the source of peace. As far as it depends upon me from now on, I'm the source of peace. I'm not going to, this is why he says in verse 18, I'm not going to pay back evil. I'm not going to recompense what I think that you owe. but I'm going to be the source of peace. How can I do that? How in the world can you live at peace with sinful people? Look at the next verse. I'm glad you asked. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, it's quoted in Deuteronomy 32, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is another one of those objective truths 
that in this weird world that we live in that people are trying to do away with. Listen to me. I love you enough to talk about this. This is the doctrine of hell. Now, in 21st century modern mind, I hear this all the time. People are like, I can't believe in a loving God who would send people to hell. But Paul clearly says here, leave it with the wrath of God. It's his. He will repay. Listen to me. There is no way that you can live at peace with sinful people without the doctrine of hell. What do I mean by that? I'm going to read a quote to you. And, and, and again, hang with me. You've got to think here. Because this is from a, a Croatian theologian. And it's pretty deep. So I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to explain it. But, but follow me here. It's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. He wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he delivers a hard truth to those who want a God of love with no judgment. Now listen to what he says. He says, my thesis will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. That would be us. He said, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throat slits, throats slit. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is a perfect non-coercive love. He says, soon you will discover, now listen to this, this is the part that really cuts to us. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. What is he saying? He's saying if you didn't live in a quiet suburban home like you do, if you lived in a village, in a war-torn area, and you were a believer, there's only one thing that will motivate you not to go and kill people who have killed those you love. It's a God who judges. He goes on to say that there is no way to live at peace in the world without a hell where God judges evil. So you're going to go home today. Let's lighten this up a little. You're like, what did you learn? The way I live at peace with my spouse is by believing in hell. That's right. That's how you live at peace. You want to know why? Because any sin committed against you, God sees. And God will judge. He will judge it. Now, for all of you that think, man, I can't believe, and again, one of my pet peeves are black. People are like, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. As if he was different. The God of the Old Testament is judgy, like killing a bunch of stuff. The God of the New Testament is love. You know, Jesus pitting lambs and stuff. <laughs> oh, this is how I cope, by the way. This is what I do. All right. 
Listen, the God of the New Testament is just as judgmental. You want to know why? Because he killed Jesus. He's just as judgmental because he has to be. You don't want a God who lets evil go. You don't want a God who doesn't judge sin. And to think that the God of the Old Testament was just judgy and not gracious is to misunderstand his nature. He doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't enjoy judging so much so that he sent his son so that he could judge himself instead of you. So yes, you can't live at peace without a God who doesn't judge people in hell, but you can live at peace because that you know it will be paid for there or in the cross. See, God hated sin so much You were so bad that Jesus had to die, but you were so loved that he chose to die. So how can you live at peace with your spouse? Knowing that one way or another, payment will come to them or to Christ in their place. That's how you live at peace. Because if you don't believe that, you'll try to pay him back yourself. You'll try to pay them back yourself. You'll take vengeance away from God's hands into your own. And here's where that gets so messy. You want to know the problem in inner city Chicago? Is a lack of understanding in the gospel. Because the rule on the streets, anybody who grew up on the streets is, you take my eye, I take your eye. It's one for one, bro. You you kill somebody in my, my group, I kill somebody in your group. And then we get what we get. But what's going to stop that is an understanding of if I take vengeance, I am taking God's place. It's not mine to get vengeance. This is why I love how the Bible says it. He will repay. And I can live at peace knowing that God has got it. And then he says this. Look at the next verse. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, let's talk about this for a second, because this verse has been so misquoted. Like he's quoting Proverbs 22 here. But here's what Christians will do, because you're so wicked. Christians are like, I'm not going to get him back. I'm going to be nice to him. And in being nice to him, I'm getting him back. Right? Don't act like you hadn't thought that. Because the Bible says, I'm going to leap, heap burning coals on his head. Burn, baby. Right? Y'all act like I don't represent most Christians. But that is not what that verse means. In fact, most theologians think that was written in Proverbs by Solomon. So obviously he would have understood Egypt and everything that happened there, the ancient Near East. There was a practice that when someone was repentant, they would get burning coals in a jar and carrying it on their head as a sign that they were wrong, that they deserved punishment 
but they were repenting for what they did wrong. Here's what he's actually saying. When you don't pay back, but when you feed them, when you, when you give them something to drink, when you meet their needs, you're loving them and you're allowing repentance to happen. You're now making room for repentance. Because think about it. My kids might repent out of fear of judgment. But I'll just think, oh, they're doing it because they don't want to get spanked. But if I bless them and I'm nice to them and then they come to the conclusion on their own, you know what, mom and dad? I'm not saying we shouldn't punish our kids. But if I'm creating room and then they come and say, you know what, I'm really sorry for that. Now I know it was genuine because I made room for repentance. See, in your marriages, in your relationships, in this church, if you don't love people the way God loved you in Christ, then you're not making room for repentance. Here's what happens. They offended you at this moment in time. God, in the future, when they die, will either judge Christ in their place for their sins, or he will judge them in their place for their sins. So if you bring the vengeance of the Lord yourself, then what you're doing is you're taking this time, instead of allowing this time for repentance, you're taking God's place and you're bringing judgment now. You're closing the window for the opportunity of repentance. And you're bringing judgment to bear. Now, again, we'll get into this next week when we talk about chapter 13 with the role of government. I'm not saying that, that sometimes that judgment's not immediate. But what I'm saying is simply this. As far as it depends on you, you're to be the source of peace. Why? Verse 21, look at this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That word there, overcome, is another word that you know. It's the Greek word, Nike. It means victory. See, if you win in the relationship by perpetuating evil, then you lost. I say this all the time with marriages. If your goal in the marriage is to win the fight, guess what? You're going to bed with a loser. Think about it. You can lay in bed and like, <laughs> I won. I'm going to sleep well. But you're sleeping next to a loser. See, if your goal is to win a fight, you'll do it by any means necessary. But if your goal is to win the person, See, this is how you know someone has become emotionally healthy. They're no longer trying to win arguments. They're trying to win people. They're no longer trying to just be right. They're going after righteousness. And they take the way of Christ. Well, even though maybe they were the ones who were sinned against. They extend grace. 
And this is the only way you can do it, my friends. This is why the Bible says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Some of y'all are gonna go home tonight and your spouse is gonna be cooking dinner for you. <laughs> and you're like, hold up, why are you cooking for me? Are you feeding me because I'm your enemy? I, again, I thought that was funny. <laughs> why are you being nice to me? Because being gracious, when, when someone is gracious to me, I know they love me. I know they care more about me and they care more about the relationship than they do about being right. I've had people in my life come up and just nail me for doing wrong. Just nail me. And instead of allowing room for repentance, they leave. And this happens in churches all the time. People are like, I thought you were a Christian. You shouldn't act like that. And people leave offended. People leave marriages. People leave the church. When what's crazy is if someone offended you, I'm not saying you can't go to the person and call it out, but if you'll do it in a gracious way and allow room for repentance, then maybe the relationship can be reconciled. But if you just speak the truth and take your toys and go home, then guess what? You are now harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. And listen to me, church, that is worse than what they did. It is high time for the church to be the most emotionally healthy place on the planet where we forgive one another. Where we quit acting like we were God and we, they just offended the, the precious. And we say, you know what? I'm gonna assume the best about your intentions there. And I, I don't like what you did and what you did was wrong. Listen, don't hear me. I'm not saying that if somebody sinned against you, you don't have a right but what I'm saying is take the same posture towards them that Christ took towards you. When the greatest victim on the planet was Jesus himself. But he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. There's so many Christians who are unwilling to forgive. And Jesus, you better be careful because Jesus says, if you can't forgive, you're not forgiven. So the... The biggest essence of being Christian, hear me friends, is not just nailing the scripture commands. Like don't murder, check. The essence of being a biblical Christian is being the first to forgive. To do everything that you can to reconcile, to be a reconciler. Because God in Christ reconciled you to himself. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you so much. This is such a hard scripture because there's been a lot of evil that's been done in this world. 
And God, we're not saying that the evil that was done was okay. We're not because you will judge it. But what we're simply saying, God, is an understanding that we were first your enemy. Before anybody sinned against us, we sinned against you. And your posture towards us was one of reconciliation. Where you loved us so much that you were willing to pay the price for something you didn't even do. To get us back. And God, there may be people here today who are still an enemy of you. And one day they will pay for their evil and they can try to think it away or act like a loving God doesn't repay, but we know in our hearts that justice comes. It may not come perfectly through the government, but it will come one day through God. And so God, I pray if there's anybody here that hasn't trusted Christ right now, you would open their eyes to see the truth that they were your enemy, but if they are willing to confess, then they can be reconciled with you. No one looking around or talking here as we close, but if you've never trusted Christ, then right now where you are, you can confess and believe. I'm gonna give you a chance to do that by praying with me. So if that's you, you can pray with me and say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I confess I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Would you forgive me? Reconcile me through Christ. I give you my life. Thank you so much for loving me. Now, again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed to trust Christ, we want to know that. So would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women walking around, going to put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. But then those of us who have trusted Christ, again, I'm not saying that forgiving someone is the same thing as saying what they did was okay. It's not. In fact, in order to forgive someone, you are saying what they did was wrong. But please understand, when God works in your heart in such a way where you get that you were his enemy and yet he was gracious, it does something in you to help you be gracious to those who have sinned against you. And you're allowing room for repentance to take place. If the person repents, you're reconciled. If they don't, you won't be reconciled. But your forgiveness of them is not dependent upon their repentance to you. You forgive first, which then makes room for them to repent. Then it's on them. And if they repent, you're reconciled. If they don't, you've forgiven. Father, would you allow this to happen? In Jesus' name. Amen.